We are now live on Facebook and live on Sermon Audio. So I see one thumb still, only one. Okay, there's the other one. So I, now I can take the glasses off because I can't see with the glasses, as everyone knows. Ah, before I get started, I just want to talk about this confederacy of Ezekiel 38 that is basically forming before our eyes. I don't know how much of you folks in the Internet are paying attention to that. I did not disable the clock, did I? There goes the train. We're on time. How about that? I can't remember everything. can't remember anything now. But uh, what I'm trying to say is that Russia and the Middle East is pretty much the central areas of this confederacy that's going to come and attack Israel. And you can see that Russia is attacking the Ukraine, and they are doing it in an unrestricted warfare methodology. In other words, they're butchering people. They're executing people. They're... They're doing all kinds of things. It's an, an extraordinarily brutal uh, operational system that they've employed. They did the same thing in in Syria. And now notice they're bringing Syrian mercenaries up into the Ukraine to fight against the Ukraine army. So you see this connectivity between Syria and Russia. And you know that Russia also has control of Iran. They provide them with nuclear technologies and nuclear materials. And that nuclear system is going to be attempted to use on Israel to destroy them. And that's Iran's purpose. And that's Syria's purpose for allying with the Russians. But the Russians are doing it in order to get natural gas and to get oil distribution capability. They want those ports. They want the Donbass reason to give them a, a land bridge into Odessa ultimately. But if they can't get Odessa, they'll be fine with Mariupol. In any event, they're going to, they have an opportunity now to take their military, move it into the uh, Crimean Peninsula, and then export it into the Middle East and seize control of the oil down there as well. If they get it all, they became a, become a very rich nation. <coughs> so now it's looking more and more to me that the hook of Ezekiel 38 is oil. Because the Golan Heights has one billion barrels. And guess who is already harvesting that that material? And who will compete with Russia for the European oil and natural gas market? That's right. That would be Israel. So you can see it all beginning to form. And I think that's incredibly exciting. How and, and why does Putin attack Israel? It says that uh, he comes from the north and he comes for oil or spoil. Isn't that interesting? comes for spoil, of which oil happens to be a, a small derivative of it, and it just makes me interested. Okay, so enough of that. But pay attention. It's a fantastic time. If we see Ezekiel 38, oh, if we're the generation that sees that, oh, what a magnificent honor. Okay, April the 3rd. How about that? It's April. 2022, lecture discussion number 169 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, usually one and two Job, not all of Job, but uh, hopefully one and two Job, and Genesis 1 through 3, chapters 1, 2, and 3, and Genesis 15. Ah, we shall endeavor to persevere again today in Genesis 15, having, having ended last Sunday, lecture number 168, I hope that's right with uh, somewhere in Genesis 15, somewhere in Genesis 15 is free will belief. Why do I think that's got to be true? I hope I explained that last week. So where might we find the Genesis 3, 4, Satan and the woman contention resurface in Genesis 15? Did that make any sense? I hope it did. The lie of Satan is at Genesis 3, 4, where he and the woman are in this discussion. I call it contention because there is tension there, and especially from the satanic side. That has to resurface in Genesis 15. So we have to find the lie of Satan. Okay, so that is where we left off. That, of course, was an expanded version. Um, but everyone should know that there are continuing threads of Satan's lie in Scripture. So you can find his lie literally everywhere. Clarence Larkin, uh, in his incredible book, referred to this as the trail of the serpent. And he tracked it. And he, he graphed it out. He knew it was there. But most recently, we covered the angelic realm councils, where the entire angelic realm got together at Job 1 and Job 2. 
where the lie of Satan was before the entirety of the angelic host. That's this combat, if you want to think of it this way, between the Lord God Almighty of creation and a created being, right? The Lord God Almighty and the former once anointed cherub. So we we have that discourse between the two and the entire angelic realm has assembled to listen to it because they thought something interesting there. They thought that the outcome was in doubt. Now, why would they think that? We'll get to that as we go along, I hope. Hopefully this week, maybe next week. But anyway, we have this premise that Satan trafficked at Ezekiel 28.16 and, and spread it throughout the entire angelic realm. And one third of, the, of that realm believed it. And of course, acted on that belief. And the, the, so this is the existence of will being the centerpiece of Satan's assertion. The first lie, if you prefer it that way. You've heard me talk about this particular subject, but I'll put it in this term today. Effectively, Satan was the first being to postulate superdeterminism, which is defined as the absence of will. That is the definition of superdeterminism. There is no will. You have no will. Will is, is illusionary. Will is a delusion. You have no choice. That is the first lie. And, and that is why we have been raising these questions, referencing the rejoicing of the faithful angels, for example. Because if faithful angels rejoice, uh, obviously if the angels rejoice each time a sinner, a sinner repents, as God himself says, he said, that's God who said that. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, said in Luke 15.10, angels rejoice at the repentance of one sinner every time. If the, and that, So obviously, if that's the case, and it is the case, then the theological superdeterminists must or should at least, and let me say this really quickly, yes, there are many theological superdeterminists, many of them. A legion of them, as you know, we got a we got an amen out of the control system today. The, the controllers. I am not in control of any of this. Those of you who think that I have control, I have no control. I like it that way. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> and, and it's really it's a sad, unfortunate condition that there are a dominant number of theological superdeterminists out there in the churches today. It's a, a, unfortunate, and they ought to. Attempt to explain, but they don't, but they should attempt to explain why the faithful angels believe that they, the angels, possess the free will to rejoice. You see, responding with joy is an event. It's a free will exercise. Spontaneity is improvisation. It's impulsiveness. It's emotional. It's intuitive. It's all things that testify of what? That whoever is doing it is a willful being, which is the faithful angels, which the faithful angels certainly believe they are. And God says they are. Luke 15.10. And I should interject uh, Luke 4 and Matthew 4, the New Testament complement to Job 1 and Job 2. Job 1 and Job 2 is the assembly of the angels, as I just covered. You're watching the combat, if you will, the contesting between Satan and the Lord God of creation. And Matthew 4 and Luke 4 and Mark 1 is the New Testament equivalent to, uh, to Job 1 and Job 2. The faithful angels are assembled again with the... They're all watching. It's the same thing repeated. The faithful angels, though, at the end of it, at the conclusion, after God, after God in the flesh, Jesus says to Satan, be gone. And he, and he sends him away for how many light years? We don't know how much distance he, he drove him out with. But I can assure you it was a stunning move for Satan, as I've said many times. But those faithful angels, they descend to do something to God. God is there and they come down, God himself, and they minister to him. So now we have to define minister. How do you minister to God? What is the number one methodology? That's not the wrong word. The number one revelation revealing that they are ministering to God. God wants them to do something, and it's really pretty simple. I submit it's a free will involvement. Does God want a robotic ministering that you're forced to do because you have no will? Again, God himself refers to their rejoicing. 
The Bible says they came down and ministered to him. When the, when the faithful angels come down, it isn't to give him food, as so many commentaries say. My gosh, how can I stop this? He, they came down and, and they, they came down in a worshiping, believing. Worship requires belief. And so we have a belief system here again. Okay, so far, Twice or so in scripture that I've just covered right there. Jesus God affirms the will of the angelic realm. A third time, if you want to throw in a third time, is the Genesis 15.8 question of Abraham. God endorses Abraham's question. How can I know that I will be given infinite eternal life salvation? Now, I've changed it just enough, but I think it's completely accurate how I've done it. And the very act that God himself replies to the question, he does not dismiss the question. He replies to it. He answers the question. Now think of answered prayer. If you get something, people ask me all the time, how can I get answered prayer? And the answer to that question that has answer in the question is line up behind God. Ask what God wants. You do that, you're going to be fine. In fact, you'll be 100 percenter. Ask for a Mercedes-Benz, not going to happen. If it does happen, it isn't God that did it. Uh Uh-oh. God endorses, he answers Abraham's prayer, if you want to put it in those senses. And I think that's perfectly appropriate. How can I know that I will be given infinite eternal life salvation? And again, the very act that God refers, or I'm sorry, answers that prayer, that responds to the question of Abraham the way he does, especially how he does. It's the take me. I'm going to put that on the board. The fight for the take me today. I get a few people that say, It is not take me. And I'm saying that it is. Somebody is wrong. It probably isn't me. (sighs) Okay. I'll at least make the case. Look at what he does. He says, take me, and then he starts to define what take me is. This is a tremendous amount of information to this question of of Abraham. A heifer, a female goat, a ram, a turtle dove, a young pigeon, a smoking firepot. Flaming torch light, overwhelming complexity now comes. The encyclopedic, sweeping, unabridged aspect of God's answers tells you that he respected, if you want to think of it that way, he validates that prayer of Abraham, how can I know? It demonstrates unequivocally that Abraham can do something about his salvation. What can he do about it? He can know it. He can know it is certain. And this doctrine as you know, right, is the assurance of salvation doctrine. And the companion of the assurance to salvation doctrine is, do you know, do you know, do you know? Yes, it is. It is the eternal security doctrine. They are together, conjoined. Okay? So that is what's being discussed by the Lord God of creation and Abraham. Eternal salvation and assurance of salvation. And that begins with Genesis 15.8. How shall I know? I will. So let me put that up. How can I know? I will. Very important, that wording. Inherit eternal salvation. And again, to repeat the fundamentals. Abram has the capacity to know. And knowing is an act of consciousness. God is addressing, he's answering a question that is abounding with implication. Number one, salvation requires the forgiveness of sin. You can see that in the heifer, the goat, the ram, the turtle dove, the young pigeon. Salvation requires the forgiveness of sin. For another example, number two, the covering of sin requires the blood of life. There has to be blood. It has to be life blood. He's covering eternity. How can I know that I will inherit eternal salvation? So eternity is at stake here. That's infinity. That's a mathematical principle. Infinity is. And will. Will. How will I, I will inherit eternal salvation. If you have will, then you have existence. And we're discussing existence. 
and I'm assigning knowing to the same level as will. Both are evidences of existence. If I know something and I have the will to act on what I know, then I have existence. Both of them, again, linked, intermeshed together. Notice Genesis 15.6. That, I believe, I'm proposing is the verse that launches Genesis 15.8. I'm going to say without Genesis 15.6, Genesis 15.8 doesn't happen. The question isn't answered. God doesn't respond to it. One thing you notice about God, when you don't get an answer to your, I want a Mercedes Benz, then you know something about his opinion of your prayer. But he answers here again in a dramatic way, an extraordinary way, an incomprehensible level of answer. So I'm saying that without Genesis 6, Genesis 15, 8 is not, you would get silence. But he didn't get silence. Abraham asked a wonderful, perfect question, and God responds. I know what I'm saying about 15.6 and 15.8. It's pretty bold talk for a semi-blind, emaciated man. So I've progressed out of the one-eyed fat man. But I'm now emaciated. I am unrecognizable to myself. How's that for scary? I look in the mirror and go, who is that? Get him out of here. Where's his plastic surgeon? What can we do? Nothing. Nothing. We can do nothing. Where am I? Romans 4, 3 and Galatians 3, 6 agree with my assessment that 15, 8 is dependent on 15, 6. So I'm in pretty good company now. Yay me. But I believe it is completely obvious that Genesis 15.6 is the underlayment for 15.8 Genesis. So to rephrase that a little bit, if Abraham is not described as he is in 15.6, then uh, 15.8 and 15.9 do not happen. So you see this progression. So something in Genesis 15.6 is crucial. If I'm right... I say, so perhaps uh, we need to find out what is crucial in 15.6 then. Would you agree? Duh. And here it is. And Abraham did something. What did Abraham do? 15.6. He believed. That's right. Abraham believed. So now look at what I got here. I got this one. I got this one. And I got this one. That is not an accident. I could stop, full stop, right here, right there. That was enough. I don't have to keep reading 15.6. What is belief? What is the belief process? How is belief interconnected with knowing and will? Is it possible to believe without will? Can you separate your will from your belief? I don't believe you can. How does knowing impact belief? Abraham believed. How shall I know I will? I know I will believed. The belief of Abraham sets in motion Genesis 15.7. And he, and listen, um, he, he, Abraham, believed in the Lord and God accounted it to Abraham for righteousness. Believed is the key element there. Is there righteousness without belief? If he didn't believe, would there be righteousness? That's another way. I know I'm, I'm, I'm asking all of that for a friend, but you know why I don't do that. Really, because I have none. And I'll have less at the end of this lecture. If I happen to have a friend out there, well, this could be the end of it. The belief of Abraham sets in motion Genesis 15:7. God tells Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out. We'll put that on the board. Who brought you out. Brought you out. I brought you out. I'll, oh, I better put the U in there. I brought you out. I give you this. I brought you out. I give you this. Brought. Give. This. So, obvious question. What did he bring Abraham out of? 
What did he give Abraham? What is the this? Now, being the exalted, some would say inflated, highly trained religious professional that I'm supposed to be am, I intentionally omitted the words of Ur of the Chaldeans and land to inherit it. I left that out because I wanted you to focus on I brought you out. I am the Lord who brought you out to give you this. Start thinking about what that could mean. Take those other words out and just look at those words. And Romans 4, 1 through 3 makes it clear that Genesis 15, 6 is regarding salvation. So what's the this? You put Romans 15, or 4, 1, 3 to Genesis 15, 6 and you're going to decide that the this is salvation. As does Galatians 3, 1 through 18. Romans 1, 16 and 17. Salvation for everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. Believes what? I brought you out of what? Sin and death? This is salvation by grace. And the what is sin and death. That's my position. Can I defend it? The righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. And it is written, the just shall live by faith. Romans 1.16. The just shall live by faith. Galatians 3.11 repeats Romans 1.17. The justified shall live by faith. Galatians 3 is powerful. It's hardly read. No one reads Galatians 3. Largely ignored in this mega church, Christ neglected, Christ outside, Christ knocking on the door because he's not in the church age. I've spent hours and hours and hours in a futile attempt, to, and I've given up. To persuade the law and grace advocates because they believe salvation is law and grace. They don't believe it's law or grace. And I have the law or grace position. They will not be moved. They will not read Galatians 3. They love their saved by works law position. And you can't get them off of it. And I've tried. It is, uh, it's almost, uh, it's not just futile. It's beyond futile now. Uh, Galatians 3, 1 through 9, however, offers this rebuttal. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or the hearing of faith? Right there. Now you know it's not law and grace, is it? It's law or grace. Are you so foolish? That's a rhetorical question that Paul asks the Galatians. It implies, yep, you're foolish. You're so foolish. Not just foolish, you are so foolish. Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Another rhetorical question implies, no. How can you be so foolish to think that the works of the flesh is somehow going to save you. Just as Abraham believes, believed, Paul goes on to say, the Holy Spirit through Paul, just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for salvation, righteousness, so then those who are of faith blessed. For as many are as are of the law works are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law. Or the works. Law works is the same thing. No one is justified by the law in the sight of God. That's what it says. No one is justified by the law in the sight of God. The justified shall live by faith. There's that phrase again. That pesky truth that it is. How does that not get through? What kind of blindness makes you disregard Galatians 3? I don't know. Genesis 22.18 is the culmination, as a matter of fact here. Genesis 22.18. Whoops, I make a noise. Galatians 3. Those guys are really good friends, to use a metaphor. Galatians 3 and Genesis 22, 18 
is amazing. Genesis 22.18 is a Genesis 15 verse. So that should not come as any surprise. Because Abraham said, I, how can I know I will inherit it? So we're in the same, how can I know I will get salvation? The answer is not works. So we would expect Galatians 3 to somehow connect back to Genesis 15, and it does that through Genesis 22:18. No surprise. Galatians 3 sends us back to Genesis 15 by way of Genesis 22:18 to make it as clear as I can. But we're going to, however, when I say we, I mean me, I'm going to reverse the process, being that uh, Cliffside, see, I can blame Cliffside for that. Cliffside is predisposed to going backwards. It's a systemic condition. I can't change it. It's irreversible. It's inoperable. It's terminal. I'm sorry for that. No, I'm not. Not really fake sorry. So let's look at this stunning Genesis 22.18. You understand Genesis 22.18, you have a valuable benefit now. To the, to all students of the Bible because of what it demonstrates with respect to the entanglement and the complication of Scripture. What I like to call the small details. Never neglect the small details. So we're going to begin here. Let me see. Am I going to read this? I think I am. Yeah. <coughs> we're going to begin uh, 22.17. Yeah, maybe not. I wrote that. I hope I got it right. But I sometimes make mistakes. Okay, I always make mistakes. Let me find it here. Come on, be a professional. There we go. I'm going to back up. I'm not going to give you 22.18. Instead, I'm going to back up. I'm not sure where yet, but I'm going to. uh, Because it confuses the vast internet listening audience when I do it this way. And that's my plan. And I should say... Still listening, uh, because I'm assuming that many and most are already fast asleep, because I'm on page seven, and the majority, according to the statistics that we have compiled over years of study, the majority of the people listen to me are out cold by page four. So I'm on three pages past this, the comatose structure here. Okay, let me see where I want to go here. I've changed my mind. Is that a shock to anybody? Uh, let's start at 2215. <coughs> Excuse me. Then the angel of the Lord, I hope your Bible has all of that capitalized, because that is the angel of the Lord, and that is Christ himself. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, or vowed, if you want vowed there, By myself I have vowed or promised, says the Lord, L-O-R-D, which is the Y-H-V-H. So the angel of the Lord, L-O-R-D, is the Lord, L-O-R-D, capitalized. That's the Y-H-V-H. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only. Blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And that is amazing. So Abraham returned to his young men and they rose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham dwelt in Beersheba. Absolutely amazing. And of course you immediately figured out, wow, that's the same as Galatians 3, which it is. Okay, the angel of the Lord Jesus Christ himself called out to Abraham a second time. The first time, Genesis 22.11, note that the angel is calling from heaven and he did it twice. So Christ is where? It's a small detail. He's in heaven. Christ is in heaven calling down to Abraham. And Christ, how many times does he come? He comes twice. There's two advents of Christ, the first coming and the second coming. And I have two times he's calling out from Abraham, calling out to Abraham from heaven. Remember that the first time he's the sacrifice, he's the substitutionary prophet, the suffering servant, and the second time he's the Messiah King judge. Okay? So pay attention when you see twice he calls out. The context is the third element of the Genesis 15, 9, take me. Let me go back to 13 to prove that. 
Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it. So that's the context. He's calling out to him a first time, and he says, Do not lay your your hand on Isaac. Calls out the second time and said, Because you have withheld your son, I will bless you, and all of the Abrahamic blessing is displayed. So that's the context. It's the take me. The ram is caught in the thicket by his horns. That's a small detail. You ever wonder why his horns? Why not by his feet? Why not the thicket just has him immobilized? It's sticking on all sides of his body. But no, it's by his horns. The ram caught in the thicket. The substitutionary aspect of the redemptive work of Christ is called here, this is Christ displaying his substitutionary aspect of his redemptive work, and it's called the Jehovah Jireh. The God will provide himself. That's Jehovah Jireh, which is why Genesis 59 is properly rendered take me, because I have the take me happening in Genesis 22:18. Take me instead of taking Isaac. So that's why I say take me is, is irrefutable and should be, should and of course, guess which translation gets the take me correctly? The old King James. Absolutely right. Nailed it. And critically important. So the point for today, yea, a point that God, God will provide himself, which is why Genesis 15.9 is properly rendered take me because of Genesis 22.13 through 19. Or 13 through 14, if you want to condense it. Notice that Christ swears, he promises on himself. He does that because, by myself I have sworn. He does that because he's the one who calls out from heaven. He's the Lord God himself. He's the word of God. If you want to say the voice of God, you can. The God of creations, Colossians 1, 1, chapter 1, 15 through 18, John 1, 1 through 4. He can pledge, he can vow, he can promise on nothing higher than himself. He's, he's pledging on infinity. There's nothing but, he, he, there's no, infinity prevails. Again, mathematics. Abraham would be blessed and multiplied as the stars of heaven and the sands of the seashore. Now, that's interesting. Which you all recognize immediately as a reduplication of Genesis 1.28. The blessing of Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. What's God's definition of fill? By the way. It's a mathematical principle. How much fill is fill for him? How many stars are in the universe? That would be what? The lowest consideration by the people who are concerned about these kinds of things, is 30 trillion. How much sand is on the seashores? How many grains of sand? The mathematicians naturally want to do this. They have ways of extrapolating it, right? They get a whole, uh, they get a bucket and they count all of it and then they multiply how many buckets and off they go. What's the depth and uh, the area and the cubic yards? And they have lots of time to do things like that. Mathematicians naturally want to know this because there is always math. And they have decided that there's 7.5 sextillion grains of sand on the seashores. No, that's not true because that includes deserts. And so it's less than that. Deserts are increasing. Deserts increase all the time. Word for the day is uh, desertification. It's called desertification. The continuing growth of... Uh, so you learn something here. You can go around and impress no one with that. You can, uh, you can actually cause people to hear you and run fleeing from you. <coughs> Panic will ensue. Kids will run and scream and horses will stampede. I'm quite familiar with that condition. I should repeat that Genesis 1.28 is written, it is within the frame of reference of Genesis 1.26, which is the animal kingdom. Why do I mention that? When he says to Adam and Eve, go out and multiply. 
So the 30 trillion then would include the animals with that blessing to Adam and the woman, just as it does with Abraham, in my opinion. And I think I can prove that by Genesis 15 once again. The calculation is then the seashore sand equalization with the stars in the universe. Which one is the most? And so use your phones. You've got phones. Somebody's got a really cool phone now. The rest of us, I don't have a phone. Well, I do. I have a phone, and it rings every now and then. It has no capability to do any math or look up anything on tube face or bookworm or whatever it is. There's also this Genesis 13:16 that you have to throw in there because uh, he also says to Abraham, as the dust of the earth. So have fun with that. The summation of the sand and the stars. That's what you're doing here. As the dust. All of these things, all of that summation, when you add them all together, what you will have is the implication of uncountability. Uh, your, your phone calculators, therefore, are useless to you. Once again, your phones are useless. I'm sorry to tell you that. Not really. Sorry, that's two in one day. And all of that, of course, once I tell you that you cannot count the sand, the dust, and the stars and come up with a number of how many descendants Abraham will have that will be blessed, well, we got some problems now, and I'll cover this on page the last page when no one's awake to hear it. But what you have is this problem. You can't count it. So now that explains, in my, my opinion, the new city of Jerusalem, why it's 1,500 miles in height. Uh, and, and it also supports uh, the infinity, the flat three torus, supports the infinity inside the seeming infinity position, which I've begun to think has more credibility than most people would consider. It's something he would do. It's how he thinks so I have to consider it strongly. Okay, where was I? Abraham and Adam. Finally, we, re- we arrive at the climatic verse down here. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. What is obey? What, what kind of process is that? If I obey Terithithi, and do what she says, which is pretty consistent behavior by me because of the proximity and the violent nature that she possesses. If I were to do that, I have to do what to do it? I have to choose to do it. I can choose not to do it. Again, proximity, hospitalization, insurance issues, all that. But I can choose not to do it. And if I can choose, what do I have? I have will. And God once again validates his own voice because you have obeyed me. You have obeyed my voice. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now, there's another phrase in there that's incredible besides that. It's all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. How does that happen? Most people believe this is just a genetic transference that Abraham's going to have lots of descendants. It can't be so because all the nations of the earth now are involved here. So you immediately don't go past those small details. Now, Galatians 3.16. I've written it down so I don't have to flip to it and spend time. Now, Galatians 3.16. Now to Abraham, it says. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, Christ does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as one, and to your seed who is Christ. That's what Galatians 3.16 is saying. So right there, seed should be capitalized in verse 18 because he's speaking about Christ there. In Christ, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. That's what the Holy Spirit through Paul is saying. And he's saying, is that the angel of the Lord did not say seeds. The angel of the Lord said seed singular as of one. And to your seed who is Christ. That's what the angel of the Lord said to Abraham 22.18. That's how I get back to Genesis 15. 
Would Christ know that he's the seed of the woman? Of course he does. Obviously, the word seed in Genesis 22:18 should be capitalized because the angel of the Lord is the seed of the woman, Genesis 3:15. The translators of every Bible version I have read did not notice thy seed was singular. I've never found one that noticed it. Even with Galatians 3.16 declaring the significance of the Genesis 3.15 seed of the woman being referenced in Genesis 22.18. They didn't capitalize it. The seed who will bless all the nations is referring to Genesis 3.15. The seed who will end the seed of the serpent. That's what what 22.18 is doing here. The Hebrew of Genesis 22.14 is this. It is said this day in the mountain YHVH shall be provided. The Lord shall be provided. You're going to find a lot of other translations, but that's the Hebrew. It is said this day in the mountain, YHVH shall be provided. You will find many other translations, again, that obscure, in my view, the only accepting, or the only acceptable rendering. God will provide himself. God shall be provided. I'll take both of those. Both comply with the take me of Genesis 15.9 and the seed of Genesis 3.15. I've got 3.15.15.9 and now I look at 22.14 and it is obvious God shall provide himself. Should be there. Or God provided himself. For today, realize the majesty of Genesis 22.18. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but to Abraham and his seed, but as one. And that one is Christ himself. It's a small detail. If you looked at your Bible, have you looked at your Bible, young lady, there at 22.18 of Genesis? Is seed capitalized? No. It should be. It's a small detail, but it's incredible. Because it tells you, we're talking about Genesis 3.15 now. And 3.15 is connected to 15.9. Because 22.13 through 19 is connected to 15.9. I can hardly keep it straight. Your Bible was authored by the infinite mind of God who is in authority over time. Time is, he has, he contains time in himself. Time is smaller than him. Much smaller. And his scripture that he wrote uh, through these agents, through his spirit, is filled to overflowing with evidences to be gleaned by those who hear his voice. And so don't ever speed over the small details. Every time you see seed in the Bible, ask yourself, is that Genesis 3.15? Okay. How am I doing? Not terrible. Moving along, which is cliffside speak uh, for a retreat. I've often thought that right at these times I would I would have a, one of these. Uh, I needed an applause, something that I could push, and I'd get applause. I need a laugh track, and I also need a warning beeper, truck backup alarm system. Every time a truck backs up, beep beep beep. I need one of those, and that's one of these occasions. And, and the problem is obvious, right? If I got a backup warning system, what would happen? It would be running constantly. It would never, never stop running. That's the problem. So I can't have that. But I want it anyway. I want a laugh track button. I want a laugh, I want laughter, or did I say laugh track? Laugh track. I want applause and a backup beeping button. That's all I need in life now. If I am correct, duh, duh thank you. And the ram caught in the thicket of thorns testifies, John 5.39. It's testifying. The whole Old Testament is testifying. But if I am right, duh, and the ram caught in the thicket of thorns is testifying of the substitutionary redemptive work of Jesus Christ among its manifold testimonies. So it's got lots of testimonies. But one of those testimonies is the substitutionary redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Then we should conclude that the same is to be said of what else? That's right. You got it right. The heifer, the goat, the two birds, the smoking fire pot furnace, and the flaming light torch. You have to do the same thing there. You do it here, you got to do it. You got to keep doing it. How easy is Genesis 15? No. Not easy is the answer. Rhetorical question implies it's very hard. 
by way of explanation, the cut in two ram has in its testimony the substitutional aspect of the crucifixion of Christ. He's the substitute. Christ is the substitute. As demonstrated more specifically at Genesis 22. Think of Genesis 22 as providing more information. The Hebrew principle of recurrence, if you want to think of it that way. The second block of scripture that supplying more detail to the first block of, of scripture. The book of Genesis is loaded with recurrence. It's how it works. All the prophetic books have recurrence. They will give you information, then they will explain that information later on. And you'll have to go take that information and mix it with this information in order to uh, to resolve chronologies. That's why there's so much confusion. Is Who was created first, the animals or Adam, for example? There's confusion because they don't recognize the recurrence principle that the Hebrews uh, always write with. Especially uh, all of that occurs in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. With that said, the ram caught in the thorns is multifaceted. Fascinated. What kind of word is that? Multifaceted. Sometimes my saliva overcomes my mind. And so it's quite difficult to assign priority to the ram. Which one is the most important? Can we do that in Scripture? Sometimes we can. My offering of the priority is a substitutionality, the sacrificial substitutionality of Christ as the primary. People disagree with me. They do. They don't like that one. They think the thorns are typically the most important piece of the aspects, the multi-manifold of the ram. And so that's chosen by most commentators as the most significant aspect of the ram. Being that the thorns represent the curse, Genesis 3, 17 and 19, right? So the curse is being represented here, and they go that direction. Christ, the omnipotent, omniscient God of creation, as you know, included the thorns in his crucifixion. Matthew 27, 29, Mark 15, 17, John 19, 1. And whenever you got John involved, what do you have? John, because John 19.1 brings up the thorns, that, that means the thorns carry the weight of proving that the, uh, that God is act, Jesus Christ is God himself. So to put it a different way, hopefully I get it right, proves the, proving the thorn, ah, getting tired, getting old. John 19.1, Carries the weight of proving the thorns confirm the absolute Godhead of Jesus Christ. How's that? Because that's John's singular focus. That's all he's interested in doing. So if the thorns show up in John, that's the deity of Christ. So somehow the thorns, the ram caught by its head in the thorns, and the thorns on the head of Christ somehow talk about the deity of Christ. So we have to figure that that out. And again, obviously Christ is aware that the ram is caught in the thorns by its head. He's the one that put the ram there. Now, we'll talk about the ram's contribution of will. Obedience. The ram is going to be executed, sacrificed. And it's caught in the thorns. And it is there when Abraham shows up with Isaac. Genesis 22.13 Christ himself, again, is the one who is calling out from heaven twice to Abraham. Genesis 22.11, Genesis 22.15. Jesus Christ on the cross is replicating with, by putting those thorns on his head, Genesis 22.13. It's obvious beyond dispute, beyond controversy. It's fulfilling, therefore, the prophecy that is Genesis 22. Literally, he's announcing while he's on the cross with the thorns on his head that he is the ram of Genesis 22.13. Look at me. I am the ram. You should have this figured out. If you had read about Isaac and Abraham, you'd have this understood. But you don't because you don't read. You don't care. You don't put anything together. And you don't know. And you don't know. You don't know. Now, that's probably not what he said to the Hebrew. That's me ranting. Digress ranting. So, therefore, the ram of the take me, Genesis 15.9, again, supplying more support to the translation of the take me, Genesis 15.9, because Christ is himself. He's the take me on the cross, isn't he? Hey, and he's, therefore, if he's the take me on the cross, then the ram's the take me of Genesis 15.9, as is the heifer and the goat and the two birds. 
I am perplexed at this, that there's controversy here. How, how someone can argue for bring for me. That's pretty much the most common. The old King James, again, has it right. It has take me. But the old King James made a mistake. What mistake did they make? They forgot the comma. Take me, comma. That comma becomes important. Comma should have been there. It's generally omitted. You have my permission to add it in. Feel free. The thorns also attest to the meaning of the cup of Gethsemane, Matthew 26, 37 through 39. So I'm saying the thorns in the cup, let this cup pass. Those thorns in the cup are, are congruent. The thorns in the cup share the same essence. James 1.12 also in play here. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will, be, he will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Crown of life. What is the opposite of the crown of life? Crown of thorns. Which is why there's no tree of knowledge of good and evil in the new city of uh, Jerusalem. Revelation 22.2, Revelation 22.14. If I have a crown of life, I also have a crown of death. Thank you, I see it. Christ is the crown of life, and Christ put on the crown of death. Because the thorns are the crown of sin and death. So, there's how you get to your tree of life and tree of death. John 11.25 once again rises up. I, I can't say it enough. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe me? Now, a lot of your Bibles will say, do you believe this? And I have said, believe, do you believe this many times? Because I don't like to get into this discussion. Because every time I do, I have to go to Genesis 15. And I'm scared of it. Okay, not really. Obviously not. I've done hours and hours of it. But I know it'll just go boom and take off and, and I want to focus. So I go ahead and concede to this, but I'm going to tell you today the correct uh, translation in my opinion by far is do you believe me? And I, I think it should be uh, rendered that way. The Greek literally is I am the resurrection and the life. The believing in me, even if he should die, he will live. So believing in me is what the what the Greek literal literally means. So therefore, I think, do you believe me? Absolutely works. Does not. Do you believe this? Do you believe me? Conveys the actual meaning. <coughs> okay, where was I? At? Where am I now? The point. Wow! Finally, a point. Page twelve is that what we have begun to do with the ram, and what we have scarcely become, scarcely done. We've barely become operational with the RAM, with regard to the RAM. All of it's got to be duplicated with all the rest of the take me, the heifer, the goat, the turtle dove, the young pigeon, the smoking furnace, and the flaming light of life. All of that has to be done. We're trying to dissect, if you will. We're trying to figure out everything that the take me of the RAM means. And, and, and we also got the great horror and the utter darkness and the deep sleep, Genesis 15:12. All of those are the same thing. Each one of them has to be analyzed the same way we're doing the RAM today. And we've, like I said, we're not operational on the RAM. We barely have the table of contents, much less the operational system itself. We're in trouble. It's going to take a lifetime, and it would. It would take a lifetime. The plan was, and yes, there was a plan for all of you who think otherwise, is to apply the RAM principles to the two birds. That was the question I got, right, from a couple of people. who We can't name anymore because people are egging their houses, even in the Philippines. <laughs> we're going to apply these principles that we've just discussed for an hour here. Um, and that's out of order, isn't it? Because the I'm jumping from the ram to the two birds, and where should I start with this? If I'm going to start on the take me and I'm going to go in proper order, I've got to start with the heifer. The heifer. What did I say? Who knows what I said? I have to stop with the heifer, not the... Oh, I, I interchanged the F is what I did. Gosh, I am so old now. <sighs> the, 
the heifer has to be first, the goat has to be second, the ram has to be third. If I'm going to look for at the birds, I got to I got to start with the heifer, how the birds fit with the heifer, and then I got to go to the goat, and then I have to go to the ram third. Start by asking the obvious reciprocal question of the turtle dove and the young pigeon. That that being, we said we always say, why did he cut them in half? Why didn't he cut them in half? That's what we say. Why didn't Abraham cut the two birds in half? That's the question. But what the the reciprocal is: What if Abraham had cut the two birds in half? Then what? If you approach it that way, you're going to, it's going to be helpful. Clearly, obviously, and clearly, obviously is a hyper obvious state. What we would call super obviousism. I thought that was funny when I wrote it. Yeah, that's where I need that button, boy. God, I have that thing. I'd have beat that thing 15 times today. There is meanings in the bisection of the heifer, the goat, and the ram. It's called dividedness or dividedness. The plural of dividedness, of course, is dividednesses. Dividednesses. Look it up. Immediately, you should shout out. When I start talking about dividedness, you should shout out what? Where are you now in the Bible? You are at Genesis 1, 3 through 1, 6. That's where you are. You're at Genesis 1, 14, 1, 18. You're at Matthew 27, 51. 1 Kings 3, 25. What's that? That's the dividing of the Bible, of the baby, right? That's Solomon. You have Hebrews 4, 12, John 3, 19 and 20. You have Leviticus 11, 47, Luke 12, 51, 52. Whenever you're talking about why didn't he cut them in half, you're talking about dividedness. And when you're talking about dividedness, boom. It's like a dandelion that's the size of a battleship or an aircraft carrier. You've got, you, when the wind hit it, you just got pieces flying everywhere now. That's the way the Bible is designed. It's absolutely amazing. Okay. Maybe you shouted out Genesis 1, 3 through 1, 6. And if you went to Genesis 1, 3 through 1, 6, then you get a skittle. Congratulations on that. If you went to 1 Kings 3, 25, the dividing of the babies, you get a Reese's Peter Buttercup. You did really good out there. So if you did that, go ahead and pat yourself on your back or have somebody do it for you. And I just gave you a few of the dividednesses. Dividedness is a dominant theme in Scripture. Ecclesiastes 3, 18 through 20. Remember, that's how we all got here, didn't we? Dividedness. 12, 7 of Ecclesiastes. Dividedness. Those are dividednesses. They weigh heavenly here. Heaven, heavenly, heavily. Gosh. When does he retire? Yeah. Most commentators assign substance dualism to the two birds, not cut in the myth. That's what they say. This is substance dualism being presented here. Not cut down the middle. They usually termed, uh, term this in death and resurrection typology. And I don't have an objection to that. Death and resurrection most certainly plays a major role in the two birds. The question is, is how does it do it? Now we have an argument. If Abraham had cut the birds in the mist, in the middle, down the middle, he would have probably, we, we would, we would obviously neglect to, the means of the heifer, the goat, the ram being divided. Because everything was divided, we go, okay, everything's divided. But the fact that the birds weren't divided makes us look at why were the others divided. See, we have both halves of this discussion. What is the meaning of the dividedness of the three animals? They're animals. And be aware of the distinction in Genesis between the birds of the air and the animals of the field. Genesis 1.23-1.26, there's a division here, another division. He divides them from themselves. The animals of the earth and the birds of the air are in Genesis 15. Why not the sea creatures? Where are they? How about the creeping things? Why are these the ones? Is it convenience? Does God need convenience? Please. He can put a ram in a thicket. He can put everything in an ark. Could he have figured out how to get a creeping thing to Genesis 15? They're not there. To repeat from an earlier immortality of animals lectures, the animals are innocent. Romans 5.14. They are the even those who had not sinned. Of Romans 5.14. Therefore, they can portray Christ legally, judicially, and tripe. They can do it. 
Okay, running out of time now for sure. How much power, going to just throw things at the dry erase board. How much power was required to create in Genesis 1-1 to 1-31, the six days? How much power was required there? Start thinking about how much power. Go ahead and calculate the total wattage. E equals I times R. Okay, power equals I times E. Power equals intensity times uh, uh, force, if you will. Um, Electromotive force. Go ahead and calculate the total wattage. Use your phones. It won't work again. Go ahead. How much power now? Once you've got that in your mind, there's a lot of power here. How much power is it to the watt? Kilowatt? Okay, I'll give it to you instead of microwatts. How much power will be necessary to resurrect? Because I have creation and then I have resurrection. They're two halves, aren't they? Creation, resurrection. How much power will be necessary? All that must be resurrected. You've got to renew everything and you have to resurrect. And keep in mind the resurrection is under life and the resurrection is under the second death. So I have two resurrections there and I have the renewal of the new earth and the new heavens. I've got all of this stuff. Notice the pattern. Essentially the math. There's always math. Which number is higher? The creation wattage expended or the resurrection wattage expended? Or is there symmetry? Is there equality? How? Start to think like him. What's he going to do? And what do the insects have to do with this? Because now I've got to get into insects. It's crazy, but i got to now. We've got big problems with insects. And, of course, I've got the narrow gate. Matthew seven thirteen through 14. And I'll, I'll answer that question in a question because I am an HTRP. Maybe the HTRP. Who knows? I haven't met another one. No one will admit it. Let me ask it this way. How narrow is the door? Oh my. Back in Genesis, aren't I? Genesis 6.16. John 